So if you take a look on, in those sermon notes sheets that you received, on the very back there's also a list of our graduates of post-secondary uh, institutions. We're so proud of our graduates and just want to remind them that we are commanded by our Lord to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And whatever vocation you're called to, that's your part of the world to preach the gospel and to live out the gospel, and so we encourage you to do that. Well, let's open in prayer. Father, um, we thank you for our gathering today. We thank you that we have been able to honor individuals, but more importantly, Lord, to come and honor you. You are the, um, the one we have come to worship and to praise. Our Father, I pray today that you would impact our lives through your word. I pray, oh God, that you would continue to do your transforming work in our lives and we'd continue to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit, oh God. Thank you that in these uh, past days, Lord, you have been working so diligently in, in changing our hearts, changing the way we live. How critical that is in these days, oh God, if we are to, if we are to be people who actually by our lives preach the gospel, preach the good news that Jesus Christ can set someone free from their sins. And have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we pray that we would take seriously our privileged position to be called into the family of God and called to go and make disciples of all the nations. And so, Lord, to you we ask that you would now cause us and our hearts to be inclined to, to respond to your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it would seem in the marketplace we have an image problem. As Christians, Mark Clark, who's the pastor of the Village Church and um, son-in-law of, of Alan Janet Goodall, who are actually with us today, has written a tremendous book called *The Problem of God*. And one of the chapters, in one of the chapters, he's done some research in terms of surveying the uh, the uh, opinion of lost people with respect to Christians. And uh, I can say from this particular chapter, I would sort of introduce it as, ladies and gentlemen, we have an image problem. And the, in, the, in the survey that was done, <clears throat> the three top problems that people have with Christianity, and that means people who aren't Christians have with Christianity, were these. The perception that Christians are anti-homosexual, judgmental, and hypocritical. Those were the three top factors that the culture itself, the American culture itself, described in terms of their perception of Christians. And what you'll notice there is that it's not about our beliefs. It's about our lifestyle. It's about the way we live. They, have, they rejected Christianity not for evidential reasons, but rather they've rejected Christianity for moralistic reasons. In short, Mark writes, the way Christians live and act is solid proof in their minds that what Christians believe is not true. That somehow our beliefs and our behavior are not matching up. That's a huge, gigantic problem. 
Because for the most part, people who don't know anything about Christianity see our behavior long before they hear about our beliefs. Our behavior is what attracts people to our beliefs. I would invite you to turn your Bibles this morning to Philippians as we continue our study. The Apostle Paul addresses this very issue in Philippians chapter 2. And he, in fact, starts out in chapter 1, himself surveying the landscape of Christianity and noting that there is a glaring deficiency, at least in the church of Philippi that was, he was writing to and the Christians as he examined them. And it, it stems from Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and we're going to build the case that's been built for the last number of sermons, but we're going to continue to build the case because this is the theme upon which he continues to develop his thesis. And it is this, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The big question that I put before you this morning is this, can it be said of you in your workplace or wherever you are, 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 are at that you are on a daily basis conducting yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ? It would appear that the general perception of us from the American public is that we are not. We are not conducting ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what I want to draw our attention to this morning. Paul, of course, builds the case and he, and, and he, he gives examples of, of those who have set the standard. And, of course, the first example he gives is Jesus himself in chapter 2. Your attitude, verse 5, he says, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Does your attitude, as you assess it in the best way you can, reflect Christ Jesus in all the ways you are, in all the things you do, in all the ways you think? Your attitude should be the same as Jesus Christ. So Paul says, that my first example of one who conducted himself in a manner worthy of the good news is Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to, to, uh, to um, put himself forward and, and says, I am also, I have also lived my life this way. In verse 17, he says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. He says, I have laid my life on the line as well to conduct myself in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he says, I got two more guys I want to put before you. Two more examples. One of them's named Timothy and the other's name Epaphroditus. And today that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at a couple of more examples of those who've lived their lives in a, in a manner worthy. They've conducted themselves in a manner worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. What we're going to look at today is there's no new teaching here at all. It's, it's a, one of those rare sections of Scripture where you, you aren't really taught anything new at all. It's, it's just exemplary. It's, 
it's giving an illustration of what he really means. And, and we have those examples even in our midst here of those individuals who, who work diligently cooperating with the Holy Spirit to conduct their lives in a manner that is worthy of the good news of Jesus, that draws people to the good news, that compels people to want to wanna know more about Jesus Christ rather than repelling people away as far too many who are claiming to know Christ are conducting their lives. We are packaging our convictions in our old self bad manners and producing enemies of the cross of Christ. Not by our beliefs, but by our false advertising. We are packaging this glorious gospel in a bad wrapper. And it's critical that we change our whole approach because the hatred of Christianity is not so much based on what we believe, but rather how we are behaving. We need to understand that people who don't know Jesus are not going to live like they know him. Part of the challenge that we have, and as we look at this where, where it talks about anti-homosexual, judgmental, those two top of the top of the list, people who don't know Jesus are not going to live like they know Jesus. So that we would be judgmental toward people who don't know Jesus is completely off base. Jesus Christ did not act judgmental towards those who were not followers of him. He considered them lost and had compassion for them and concern for their souls. His criticism and judgment was reserved for those who were holding themselves out as highly religious, highly engaged allegedly with God. That's who he reserved his judgment for. And so it's important for us to live differently. So we, we need to ask the question then, how should we be living in a world that's clearly confused by us and confused about us? We need to pick up our game. We need to change our game for sure. How should we be making daily decisions? I mean, maybe this is, you, there, there are a multitude of decisions we have to make day by day on how we will think, how we will conduct our affairs, what we will think about a particular situation or whatever. And many of those specific situations are just simply not handled in the scriptures. We want to look, what, what in, what's the index? How should I handle this situation? Just a second, let me look it up. I got to tell, what does it tell me? It doesn't regularly tell you how to handle the situation. Paul tells us that you can conduct your whole life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ if you follow along with what Jesus has done, what Paul has done, what Timothy has done, and what Epaphroditus has done. That's what we're going to look at today. What is, the, what is the attitude, what is the approach to life that will really set you in a place where you can live your life knowing with confidence 
that I am representing the good news of Jesus in any situation. That's what we're going to look at. How can we live to reach God's goals for us in our personal family lives, in our citizenship, in the marketplace, and in our vocations? So that people are not looking at us any longer and saying, these people claim this, but they live this. Living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. By the way, this is not going to be a moral checklist today. Navigated by our own energy and self-will. I'm just going to be better at this. That's not what it's about at all. This is not a self-help presentation by any means. When Paul writes in 2 Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, he's saying that because those who claim to know Jesus Christ have had him move into our lives to renovate the temple called our body so that we can have the attitude. The attitude of Christ that has moved into us is pushing our bad attitude out of our life. That's how it works. Not by self-determination, but by conversion to Jesus Christ. By transformation by the Holy Spirit. By cooperating with the work that is guaranteed to be done to those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's our text this morning? Look at verse 19, down through verse 30. I hope... In the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, And not in him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give to me. Beloved, I want to pick out a few things. I want you to notice a couple of things this morning about what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What would that look like? Um, Clearly, uh, in our own hearts, I'm believing that we are saying, Lord, make this so of me. I mean, that's what it starts, beloved. It it starts with with you saying here this morning and through this introduction, Lord God, I want that for my life. 
I, I want to be that person in the marketplace who conducts my life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ that, that has embraced my life, the Christ who I know and I love. I want to not shame him, but I want to represent him. It starts with a sincere desire in your hearts, beloved, to want that in your lives. The Lord will grant this to us. It would seem that costless Christianity has bred a generation of people who call themselves Christians, but, but have, have either no inclination or no idea how to conduct themselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Knowing what is right, but making little connection between what is right and translating that what is right into how we live our lives in a daily basis. Please know this. There is no commendation from the Lord Jesus Christ for knowing what is right. Otherwise, Satan is a saint. The commendation from the Lord will come not from knowing what is right, but from living what is right. From living what you know is right. So I'm going to call these kind of people gospel goal-getters. You've heard of go-getters? These are gospel goal-getters. And there are four characteristics that I want to pull out of this text this morning that, that would characterize a gospel goal-getter. And you want to be that. I want to be that. I want to be a gospel goal-getter. I don't want my doctrine to be divorced from my behavior because that's false advertising. And that will receive no commendation from the Lord. I, I want what I believe to, 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 to feed itself through to how I live. So that how I live, if I live how I believe, and if I'm believing what Christ wants me to believe, how I live will be appealing and, 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 and attractive. And if it isn't, and it might not always be, if I am living out what Christ has taught me to believe, and the marketplace rejects it, I can live with that. And Jesus can live with that. Because it will be true advertising of the truth. So what is it? Well, I want you to notice verse 20. There's something about Timothy that stands out, that stood out to Paul. He had a genuine interest in your welfare. Gospel goal-getters are marked out in a special way. They are genuinely interested in the welfare of the people around them. That is a characteristic. It is natural to look out for your own interests. In fact, over in um, verse 4 of chapter 2, each one should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Uh, Paul concedes it is quite natural that we look out for our own interests. And there's nothing wrong with that, nothing inherently wrong with that. If you didn't look out for your own interests, you probably wouldn't still be alive. So you look out for your own interests, but not only your own interests. That's where the distinction between the, the normal person of the world and those who are practicing Christianity. 
Practicing Christianity means that you are constantly and genuinely looking out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. It's about others. It's not about me. It's about you. You look around the congregation here this morning and say, it's not about me, it's about you. You, you go to your workplace and say, it's not about me, it's about you. That's the distinction, that's the difference. And that's supernatural. It's natural to look out for your own interests, it's supernatural to look out for the interests of others. This is developed as a gospel goal character. It's total, total selfless giving. It is most godlike. When we are looking out for the interests of others, we are most Christ-like. Christ went to the cross, not for himself, but for others. In fact, the, the living God himself gains nothing by caring about us. Do you realize this? God is not deficient in any way. He doesn't receive anything special because he cares for us. He didn't need anything. The creation of humankind was not out of need. It was out of God's magnanimous grace and love that he decided to create. But he doesn't need anything. In fact, by caring for people, by caring for humans, by creating humans and caring for them, God risks rejection. He gains nothing by caring for us. It's completely selfless. And so it is completely Christ-like when we selflessly care for others, when our interests are broader than our own selves. That's why... Um, uh, uh, in in uh, another translation, not this one, this translation, but, but Paul talks about Timothy being like-minded to him uh, in a kindred spirit. Um, verse 20, I have no one else like him. NIV doesn't expand on it, but in the, the New American Standard, it says, I have no one like you, a kindred spirit, like-minded, like the, the same heart as the... We have the same heart because we serve the same Holy Spirit. We serve the same Lord. And, and, and He gives us this attitude of caring about the interests of others. It's how unity is forged. Joy happens when unity happens. And unity happens when we all put others' interests before our own. A, a, a church that is experiencing a great movement of unity always has to start at the level of leadership. Always. If the leadership is not in unity, the church itself has no hope of unity. It's crucial for a, a team of individuals who lead in a church to put the interests of each other ahead of their own interests. I, I can tell you, I thank God. I serve in a most amazing team here at Calvary Baptist Church. We really, really do. I, we, we absolutely care about the interests of each other. We are never jockeying for position and posture and, and, and uh, some sort of pro, um, um, uh, standing, but rather what is in the best interest of the other individual. That trickles itself down and has to move through the congregation. And, and that's what's being called for here. 
In fact, Paul says, I don't even want to lend Timothy to you yet. I need him. He is so much concerned about other, peop other people's interests. I need to keep him in my life. I I'm under house arrest here in Rome. It's not, I don't know how it's going to go for me. I might be sentenced to death. I'll send Timothy to you soon, but I can't afford to send him to you right now. He cares so much about other people. He cares so much about me. I just can't lend him to you right now. Do you have people in your life like that? You just can't lend them to anybody else? You need them so desperately because they care so much about your interests? That's the kind of people Christians are called to be. To not have a mess, but rather this, this beautiful unity of care. And, and there are three behaviors that highlight this from the text that, that help us to know what, what does it mean, what does it look like to have a genuine interest for the welfare of another he says here, Paul says here, I hope in the Lord Jesus, verse 19, to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news. Now, that, that's translated okay, but it's, it's, it, it doesn't really pull out the strength of the text. It's, it, he says, so that I might know about you. That I might really know you. How does it, what does it look like? when you put the interests of others ahead of your own interests. You absolutely want to know what's going on, the truth about someone. It, it, it's the way, you want to know the way things really are. It, it, you, know, you know when people sometimes ask you, how are you doing? And really all they want to hear you say is, I'm doing fine, and then they can move on really quickly. They're not hoping that you'll say, I'm doing terribly. It's, it's been a disaster. And you go, oh, no, yeah, no. And there's going to be a long conversation. I, I was just kind of hoping to, like, how are you doing? It's fine, good, I can move on. That's not this. And you know there are people, when they ask you, they actually really care. There's a difference. There's a difference between those who want to get, a, get away from you and those who actually really care about how you are. That's us. That's not just some of us. That's us. As Christians, that's us. We want to really know. We want to really learn how are things really. There's another thing he says here, though. Um, he says uh, that I also may be cheered. You see that? Notice that in verse 19. I may be cheered. Your Paul was hoping that Timothy would bring him news that would cheer him about these people that he loved. Your good cheers me. When it's good in your life, I'm rejoicing. I'm happy. If your interests are in front of mine, I'm happy. There are a lot of people, you know, who are in competition with each other. They're not cheering for each other. They're kind of hoping that things aren't going so well so that I might look better in my life or my, my life might seem better than yours. Oh, oh, your kids aren't doing very well? Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Not really. Because it makes my kids look better. This is, no, no, I, I cheer. I'm hoping that your life is going well. It's the opposite of using people for personal gain. 
It's you are my ambition. One person at a time. And then um, in verse 20, he says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest. That means concerned, cares. The mark of Christianity is care. When, you, when, when the, the next time the American public, the North American public is surveyed about Christians, do you know what Jesus wants the survey to say? I don't believe all the things that they believe, but I know this. These people really care about people. That's conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's lofty, isn't it? But it's what we're called to do. How, though? How can this happen in our lives? Secondly, verse 21, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. The, the second characteristic of the gospel goal-getter is they put the interest of Christ before their own. This won't happen in your life. This can't happen in your life unless you first put Christ's interests at the front of the line. Meaning in life is found by, by finally discovering our identity. Our, our identity is in Christ. Uh, our identity is, is finding ourselves increasingly being transformed into the image of God. That, that's the lofty ideals of Christianity. That's what can be attained. I, I, feel, I feel distressed for the culture that settles for such lower ideals in terms of identity. Gaining their identity by vocation or their identity by profession or their identity by sexuality. All things that will pass away. All things that are temporary. We've been called to recognize that our identity is far more lofty than that. Our identity is in Christ and Christ alone and who he is and his interests. So when what matters to you most is Christ, what matters to you next is people living Christ-like. That's why Paul could say, here's what brings me joy in verse 17 and 18. Your faith. Paul, for Paul, that was it. Because he so identified with Jesus Christ, who came to make disciples, for the apostle Paul, what mattered to him and what was the superlative of his joy was their faith. And if he could hear about them growing in their faith, he was rejoicing. And when I came back this week and got the report of what God did in so many of your hearts last Sunday, I rejoiced that what God would do, the grace of God, the kindness of God, that he would convict you of sin and that he would move your hearts in, in, in numbers, hundreds of people, and that, that, that you would, would, would 
confess your sin and, and own up to your sin, but beloved, you not only own up to your sin now, you must turn from your sin that your faith might grow. There's no greater thing for anyone to hear who loves the Lord Jesus Christ than that God's people are growing in their faith. And so it is with Paul. So it is with Timothy. There's no joy like, like the joy Paul had. This is how we bring glory to God, that we contribute to the faith growth in other people's lives. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So doesn't it just stand to reason that our investment in terms of Christ's interests are that people's faith might grow and that we might be instrumental in the growth of that faith? That's what we're called to do. There was a song, an old song of the church. There is joy in serving Jesus. You remember that song? Anybody remember that? There is joy in serving Jesus. You remember that song? Yeah, we, that's how I used to sing it, I think. But anyway, that, that's... Uh, that song, you know, I used to sing that song and say, think, it's a song, but I'm not feeling it. Because there doesn't seem to be a lot of joy in serving Jesus at times. And I realized as I was doing this study that, that the reason that, that many of us are not experiencing joy in serving Jesus is because we have set the wrong expectations before ourselves in terms of what joy really is. For Paul, joy wasn't the absence of suffering or stress or challenges or imprisonment. For Paul, joy was seeing faith grow in people in spite of hardships and suffering and struggle. So the joy he found in serving was his expectations that people would grow in the Lord. And when he saw people growing in the Lord and, and it, it, it was connected to his service, he could literally say, there is joy in serving Jesus even while I'm in prison. That's the difference. That's what we've been called to. There is joy for us in seeing someone who is in the grip of sin, loosed, by the love of Jesus Christ from that death grip of Satan, as John Piper puts it, that holds them through unforgiven sin. The only grip that Satan has on people's lives is unforgiven sin. Once sin is forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan has lost his grip on you. And as we sung this morning, we are free. We are free. Praise the Lord, we are free because we have owned up to our sin and Jesus Christ has forgiven us of our sin and Satan has lost his grip on us because the grip is only through unforgiveness sin. And for Paul, and for Timothy, and for Christ, and for Epaphroditus, and for Pastor Ken, the joy of serving Jesus is to see people grow in their faith in him. That's who we are. Thirdly, in verse 22 through 25, he, Paul is noting that these guys are are proven guys. Timothy has proved himself. He's, he's held on in the trenches. And then he gets to verse 25 and, he's, and he starts to describe Epaphroditus and, he, and note how he describes him. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. These are important descriptions, beloved, of gospel goal-getters. Gospel goal-getters are faithful 
and proven in ministry service, not flaky quitters. They stick by the stuff. Jesus went all the way to the cross for us. Real Christians don't give up on well-doing. We are committed to a holy calling. We are brought into this wonderful family of God. When Paul talked about Epaphroditus being his brother, this was startling. The brotherhood concept was in its infancy stages whereby you could be a brother of someone and not be uh, genetically connected. You mean to tell me that there's, there's family beyond family? Yes. In fact, there's family more real than your earthly family. The family of God is an eternal family. The family that you have physically is a temporary family. The family of God, he talks about the brotherhood. And then he says, my fellow worker. When you're talking fellow worker, you're not talking about serving Christ as a pastime. It's work. It's commitment. Yes, it is. It's hard. It's tough. It, it requires all of the, the, the energy of the Holy Spirit all of the time. You, you can't take time off from God. Fellow worker is not a pastime. And fellow soldier is not describing peacetime. I know we're all licking our wounds because the culture is turning against us. And I know we're feeling all bad about ourselves. And, and I know that we had hoped that our country would help us in this gospel adventure. But I have news for you. Our country's not going to help us in the gospel. Countries never have. The Apostle Paul was never writing this letter lamenting, oh, the Romans are so hard to live with. They're, they're ruining our institutions. How are we ever going to get the gospel forward? Paul wasn't lamenting anything about the Romans. The Romans were an enemy combatant against Christianity. That's the way it was. That's the way it always is. We're just finally seeing the way our country really is and always has been. The people who don't love Jesus don't love you. That's the way it works. That's why we've been called to make disciples. That's why we've been called to live out the love of Christ, that those who don't love us might turn and love Jesus. The only help for our country is not better legislation, it's more Christians. And that's our call. That's who we've been called to be. And that's why Paul gets all rejoicing when people are growing in their faith. Because that's the mission. That's our enterprise. That's why we are fellow soldiers. We're living in a culture that's declared war on our values. Yes, I get it. We all get it. We, we don't need to keep harping about Trinity Western University. Pastor Ken, I'm glad you prayed for them. But we don't have to keep harping about Trinity Western and lamenting the Supreme Court of Canada. We're going to get more and more of these decisions against us. So now it requires of us to say, how are we going to live in wartime? We're not in peacetime. We never should have thought we were. The enemy of our souls has always been against us. We've been lulled into a false sense of security. So let's understand this. We are at war. At war, the war of love. The war of loving the lost. And expecting that we're going to be faced with challenges. We choose life. They are choosing death. 
Sex is a stronger urge than sanity in the landscape of our culture. We get it. Today in Toronto, it's being pr- uh, promoted. That's the way it is. Now, what are we going to do about it? Are we going to curse the darkness? Are we going to yell at the lost? Or are we going to be gospel goal-getters who stick with our faith, stick with the ministry, stop caving into progressive theology that is accommodating the things that God rejects? That's why our Supreme Court is confused. They don't even know what evangelicals believe because we can't even come to a common understanding of taking God's word literally at face value. That's what will change and and, and turn this culture upside down. It's when all of God's people start believing all of God's word and stop selling it out to the highest bidder so that we can accommodate the culture around us. We accommodate the culture and we have no prophetic voice to speak to the culture. That's what's happening around us. And maybe we should stop publicizing our playbooks. Not this book. But maybe we shouldn't be putting out the things that really don't need to be put out for the culture to look at. You'll find it odd that I'm quoting Jordan Peterson, the University of Toronto professor, but the departure, he says, from Judeo-Christian values that have formed every foundation of our country will disintegrate our coherent structures. And we are called by Jesus to be wise as and innocent as doves. That's how we're called to live right now. Finally, he talks about Epaphroditus almost dying He says, indeed, he was ill, verse 27, almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him to you. This man, he says in verse 30, almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life. Goal, gospel goal-getters love the Lord and brothers more than personal safety. Gospel goal-getters are willing to give up the safe life so others can experience the saved life. You give up convenience, you give up comfort, you give up, you, you accept the cost, you give up personal welfare. These are not even considerations to the gospel goal-getters because the prize of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are lost is of greater greater value than your own life. Your own comfort, your own convenience. He almost died. The gospel goes forward regularly in the fog of painful suffering. Stop criticizing those people who are putting their lives on the line for the gospel. Rather, honor them. Honor those families who've given up comfort and have given up convenience and given up everything that is familiar for the sake of the good news of Jesus Christ. Honor those people. Become those people. He almost died, Paul says. I I think it's really important for us to notice that, that Paul says here that Epaphroditus almost died but didn't And the reason he didn't was a result of mercy 
and not of some sort of salvation entitlement. No demands, no decrees of healing here. Paul makes it abundantly clear that he does not teach physical healing in the atonement. It's not the birthright of believers. It was by the mercy of God that Epaphroditus got better, not by salvation entitlement. Joy happens in service when you are finally at the stage where you are willing to put your life on the line. And as Stuart Briscoe nicely brings out here, this word risking his life is the same word that you'd use for gambler. The rush of the gambler. I can tell you I would be a gambler if I even started. Because I like the rush of trying to win at anything. And you know what this text says? Transfer that rush to the gospel. Make your life about the rush of the victory of someone's faith in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel goal-getter. Beloved, to be a contributor to switching from trusting in oneself to trusting in Christ to see upside down turn to right side up, to see people trapped set free, to see people who are swimming with the culture toward a cliff of destruction turn and swim against the current, to know a person is eternally safe and secure, to turn people back to their creator, to worship him and be set free from their sins. This is what it is to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We call in the church now through the power of the Holy Spirit to rise up and live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. My prayer for me and for you is that in every situation, we will conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, putting the interests of others ahead of ourselves, conducting ourselves with Christ's interests in mind, sticking by the faith and not wavering, and risking our lives for the goal of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that people's lives may be released from Satan's grip of unforgiven sin, that they might know the freedom in Christ of sins forgiven and eternal relationship with God the Father. Are we with us? Are you with me? This is Christ's call for us. This is Christ's call for us. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, oh God, this is our heart cry. Make of us a blessing. Make of us a mission that truly reflects in our conduct a manner worthy of the good news that Jesus Christ releases people from their captivity to sinfulness, to freedom in Christ Jesus. Oh God, may this be our labor of love, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.